thank you for this book. And thank you that it is unlike any other book. This is your word. And we recognize it as such. And so we open it, we approach it this morning with, with fear, with reverence, with great expectation and with hope in our hearts. Would you incline our hearts to your word? Would you open our eyes that we may see? Would you open our ears that we may hear? Would you open our hearts that the word may be planted deep there and may it bear fruit for the rest of our days? Lord, you love to give grace to your people. And so we position ourselves under that limitless waterfall of your goodness. And we say, Lord, drench us this morning. For that to happen, Lord, I am convinced that this sermon needs much help. And so would your spirit do the work that I can't do? Would you do it for a glory that does not belong to me? To you be the glory, O Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I love the book, Dangerous Journey, which is a retelling of John Bunyan's classic, The Pilgrim's Progress. And it tells the story of a man named Christian who, because he was reading the book, the Bible, he was made aware of this load of sin that he had upon his back. And Christian found himself unable to rid himself of the load. And so he would constantly cry out. He would weep day after day, crying out, what am I to do? Where am I to go to be saved from this load? One day while he was weeping in the field, he's met by evangelist. An evangelist comes to him and says, what is it that you're weeping about? Christian says, I'm reading this book, and this book tells me that God's judgment is upon those who are under the guilt of their own sin. And Christian says, I sense God's judgment is coming upon me. I'm under the weight of my sin, and I don't know where to go. And evangelist says, well, what are you standing here for? And he said, do you not see the wicked gate? Actually, he says, do you not see that yonder wicked gate? Christian looks and he can't see it. An evangelist says, well, do you at least see the light that's shining in that direction? And Christian says, yes, I see the light. Evangelist says, well, go in that direction. Do not change your course. Do not veer off course. And off Christian goes. And while he's on his way, he runs into Mr. Worldly Wise Man, who says to Christian, what are you doing? Christian says, I'm going to yonder wicked gate. Well, why are you going? Christian says, to get rid of this burden off of my back. And Mr. Worldly Wiseman says, oh, you don't need to go that way. Let me tell you a shortcut. There's a man who lives over by that hill. His name is Mr. Legality. He will help you lose your burden. And so unwisely, Christian veers off course and instead of making his way to what he thought at one time was a hill, he finds himself overwhelmed by a towering, fearsome mountain. And it makes him tremble. 
And he begins to feel the burden on his back grow ever and ever heavier. And he's trembling and he's staggering at the imposing mountain of the law. And who should come along at this point? Good old evangelist who rebukes him. Why in the world have you veered off course? What are you doing here? Christian quickly gets on the path and he vows not to go off of it again. And sure enough, he gets to the wicket gate and on the other side, he finds a road. And as he's walking on that road, or rather trudging along, he still feels the weight of his sin. He encounters a few things on the road, but at this point uh, in the book, you begin to see pictures in this book, Dangerous Journey. And there's a scene where Christian is just trudging along. His clothes are tattered. His shoes are completely worn out. His burden seems bigger than ever before. His knees are about to give in. But you notice something about this road on the other side of the gate. It's fenced in by a high stone wall that's funneling Christian to the place up ahead. This is how the book reads. Now I saw in my dream that the road from then on was fenced in on either side with a wall and the wall was named salvation. And along this road did burdened Christian run or he did his best to run with the load on his back and he comes to the foot of this hill and he passes an open tomb and he walks up another hill to an an open place where he finds himself beneath a wayside cross and as the shadow of the cross fell across him so suddenly the burden slipped off of Christian's back and it tumbled down the hill into the mouth of the tomb, never to be seen again. Christian kept feeling behind his back and he couldn't believe it. It was very surprising that just the simple act of gazing at the cross had set him free. The burden of his guilt was gone, and he stood there in amazement. And Bunyan goes on to say in this book, great dangers would lie ahead of him, but for the moment he was as light as air. And so Christian gave three leaps for joy. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> and he went on singing. And I believe this is my favorite picture in the book, Dangerous Journey. He looks light as air. Just astonished that after all of this time, he is finally free. I've talked to friends as we've grown up, even talking about how the movie Braveheart has been moving to them. The story of William Wallace and his fight for political freedom from the oppression upon his people. This brave-hearted struggle of this man, it's, it's moving. There's something stirring to the human heart when we hear or we see someone fight for and find freedom. I wonder this morning if you had the option to choose between the kind of freedom that William Wallace experienced or the kind of freedom that Christian experienced. I wonder which you would choose. I know people 
who don't have political freedoms, and yet they have the kind of freedom that Christian had, and it's a compelling picture. And I know people who have the freedoms of this world, but don't have the freedom that Christian found. And it's a sobering picture. Christ has brought all of those who belong to him into freedom. And I believe the story of Christian in Pilgrim's Progress is an appropriate picture of the whole book of the or the whole letter of Galatians. Galatians is a letter that was written by Paul to a group of churches that he had planted in what we know as modern-day Turkey during his missionary journeys. And these Galatian Christians had experienced this miraculous saving work of God because God did the work of removing the burden of their sin. And God did that as each one of these Galatian Christians turned from their sin and placed their faith and their trust in the finished work of Jesus on their behalf. It's only been a few years that have passed since Paul was last there. And several false teachers have have arrived, and they were preaching a gospel that said, faith in Jesus is good, but if you really want to be a Christian, you have to first be Jewish. You have to keep the law. And in particular, they highlighted circumcision. If you're, going to, if you're really going to be a child of Abraham, then you must be like Abraham in being circumcised. These false teachers didn't outright deny Christ. They didn't outright reject Christ, but they merely added to his work. And I say merely because that was what it seemed that they were doing. And as Paul will say in Galatians chapter 1, if you add anything to the work of Christ, you no longer have the message of Christ. You no longer have the gospel of Christ. They insisted that these Galatians would become law keepers in order to become Christians. And so Paul rightly views this message as deadly. Listen to what he says in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of God for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say now, I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. And Galatians is Paul's passionate plea for these Galatians to not not allow any false teacher to place a burden that Christ has removed from their backs back on their backs. That's the whole letter. Do not allow those to enslave you again by insisting on keeping the law. Listen to what he says in Galatians chapter 3 verse 11. Now, no one is justified by the law before God. That's evident. For the righteous man shall live by faith. And Paul pleads, don't go back to your slavery, but walk 
in the freedom that Christ has secured for you. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. And so, Christian brothers and sisters, this morning, I just want to ask, what is it that makes you feel approved by God? I mean, I wonder if you're, if you're a note taker, just jot down, what are the few things that make you feel approved by God? Is it when your family isn't imploding? Is it when you're able to get through your to-do list in a given day? Is it when you share your faith with someone else? Is it when you read your Bible for a number of consecutive days? Is it when you pray? Is it when you have the approval of others? Paul labors in this letter to remind the Galatian Christians and to remind every Christian that we are only rescued by faith in Jesus because Jesus took our punishment that was due us for our sin. He was killed under the wrath of God and he rose on the third day. And if anyone will turn from that sin and place their faith and their trust in the finished work of Jesus alone, God will apply the righteousness of Christ to you and he will forgive your sin. And so what is it that makes you feel approved by God? You are only approved because of the work of Christ and your faith in it. Christian brothers and sisters, your approval before God has never been and will never be about what you can do. And so you are free from spending the rest of your life trying to earn God's favor. You can't earn it. It's never about what you can do. And when it's never about what you can do, guess who always gets the glory? The God who does it. 18 sermons over four months means that you and I run the risk of missing the forest because of studying the trees. And so our hope this morning is to take the forest, or if I could use another analogy, to string the pearls that we've each looked at over the last 18 sermons and to just string them together in this overview sermon of the letter of Galatians. I believe three points will serve as helpful guideposts this morning to get us there. The first one is this. Paul's authority and his gospel are from God. Paul's authority and his gospel are from God. If you're wanting to know where that's found, it's found beginning of chapter 1 all the way to chapter 2, verse 10. I mean, it wasn't too far removed that Paul was among them preaching the gospel to them. And now these false teachers are in preaching a different gospel. And these false teachers insisted that because of Paul's gospel and because of the fault in it, then Paul couldn't be trusted. And the first stroke of the, of the pen in this letter to these churches is Paul making clear that the authority upon which he stands is not a man-made authority. This is an authority that has been given by God. Look at the first verse. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, 
nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. The authority that was given to Paul for such a task is contrasted. Throughout the letter, you begin to see these motives that these false teachers are coming in. And, and what is it that's driving their message? Paul says at the beginning, the message that I preached to you was not a message that I made up. It was a message that was given to you. The authority that I have to preach this message was given to me by God. But what about the motives of the false teachers? Well, we saw last week, Galatians chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. These false teachers try to make a good showing in the flesh because they want to avoid persecution. They want to boast in the flesh of their converts. Galatians chapter 6, verse 17. Again, contrasting their desires and their ambitions and their motivations with Paul's desires and ambitions and motivations. Paul makes clear in Galatians chapter 6, verse 17. He is willing to bear marks on his body. He is willing to be persecuted. For the gospel that he's preaching, because this message, he didn't have the authority to change. This is a message that was given to him by God. The authority to preach it was giving, given to him by God. And so what takes up most of the first section isn't Paul's insistence on his authority given to him by God, but the gospel being given to him by God. Paul says that the gospel that he preached was the gospel that was given by Jesus Christ. This is what he says in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 1. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. I'm helped by Mark Dever's logic at this point. This is how Dever comments on this passage. He says, Paul, after, after saying, I received this message, beginning in verse 13 of chapter 1, Paul retells his testimony as a means of pointing out the absurdity of claiming that someone like him would suddenly just show up on the scene and begin preaching the news of a crucified Messiah to the nations of Gentiles. This was a man who was in the hall of fame of Pharisees. He even persecuted Christians. And so why in the world would this man all of a sudden come up with a message that encouraged Jews to abandon their cherished mark of identity? And why in the world would he come up with a message that invited all Gentiles to join the party, thus putting the Jewish people at risk of being a distinct, uh, uh, being extinct? This isn't Paul's message. This is God's message. And I think you and I would be served well here. A good truth to consider. Beware of thinking that truth will only consist of ideas that are appealing to you. Where did we begin to think that because we like something, that's good evidence that it's true? 
Friends, life is full of realities that are true regardless of our opinion upon them. You don't believe me? Look at your bank balance this morning. You may not like it, but it is true. Think about the the failing grade that you made on the test, the evaluation you received at work. And here's the thing. When it comes to God's gospel, it's objective. It's not contingent upon how you and I feel. And anything that contradicts God's gospel must be seen as error. I mean, these Galatian Christians knew the truth because they knew the gospel that Paul had preached. If you were to flip over to to Acts chapter 13, verses 38 and 39, this is what Paul preached to these believers in Galatians. Let them, in Galatia, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, Christ Jesus, forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. I mean, this is the message literally that Paul preached to these Galatians. You can't be free if you are adhering to the law. And these false teachers showed up to say, if you want to be free, adhere to the law. And Paul's going, wait a minute. I'm amazed that you are deserting so quickly. Regardless of the identity of the messenger, when the message doesn't match the God-given original, that message must be rejected. And it doesn't matter if that message is from your favorite podcast preacher, your favorite Sunday school teacher, or even, as Paul says in Galatians 1, even an angel from heaven. If a message goes forth under the disguise of the true gospel and it's not consistent with what the Bible says, it is to be rejected. Just as bank tellers are trained to spot counterfeits, so too are Christians to recognize counterfeits. And you say, well, I've not been a Christian that long. That's okay. You don't have to be an expert. You don't have to have a master's of divinity. All Christians should and must be discerners of truth. All Christians must remember the gospel that was preached to them. Insist that that gospel is true and reject other gospels that contradict it. Again, picking up on something that Mark Dever commented on. He said, it's interesting that Paul didn't write this letter to the false teachers telling them to stop their false teaching. He wrote it to the church telling them to not be swept away by it. He expects Christians to know better. Their message will come to an end when the church stops believing it. Do you see congregationalism in Galatians he's calling the church to be the keepers and the protectors of doctrine if you are a member of this church that is your God given privilege 
And for the new members that are joining today, we are hopeful that you will help us in the days ahead be faithful to biblical and gospel fidelity. It leads us to our second section. The second section that we see is that we're declared righteous, not by the law, but through faith. We're declared righteous, not by the law, but through faith. We see this in Galatians chapter 2, 11, all the way to the end of chapter 4. We're declared righteous, not by the law, but through faith. The heart and soul of this letter is this. It is a declaration that the only way to be justified, when I say justified, it was a courtroom term, a legal term, in which the judge would pronounce and declare someone as no longer guilty, but innocent. And that's the, that's the burden that Paul has in this whole letter. He's writing so that these Christians would know that being declared righteous, being declared not guilty in the sight of God, it can only happen by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And he's laboring because these false teachers are saying, yes, faith, faith is good. Jesus is good. But also your works are good. And what we said last week, if we have to add any of our works to the work of Christ, then we have to say that the work of Christ was not enough. And Paul passionately pleads in this letter. The work of Christ is enough. It's enough. And so then how do the benefits of salvation become available to sinners? That's going to be the most important question that you hear asked today. How do the benefits of salvation become available to sinners? And Paul's message said one thing, and these false teachers' message said another. Paul labors to show that the answer to that question, how do the benefits of salvation become available to sinners, it's not in observing the law. That's, the, that's what we heard Heidi read. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. I mean, just listen to how the... The passage begins, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Galatians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Did you receive the Spirit by doing the works of the law? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now seeking to be perfected by the flesh? Verses 10 through 14. Galatians chapter 3. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. Why are they under a curse? Because cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. Because the righteous shall live by faith. Over and over again, 
Paul says the only way in which sinners can receive the benefits of salvation is through faith alone in the work of Jesus Christ alone. And if these Galatians would just remember back to when they, when they became declared righteous, they were declared righteous not because they were finally keeping the law perfectly. No, they were declared righteous whenever they believed the gospel that was preached to them. If you just remember the things that we talked about, I mean, at the time in which it said that Abraham was, his faith was credited to him as righteousness. I mean, the law hadn't even been established at this point. And yet Abraham trusts in the promises of God. And so these, these false teachers who showed up and said, hey, if you really want to be a Christian, then you really want to be like Abraham. And Paul says, okay, yeah, if we want to really be like Abraham, what began it all before the law even came into play was that he trusted in the promises of God. And so how is it that you and I will receive the benefits of salvation when we trust in the promise of God? Justification, being declared righteous, is always through faith in Jesus who removed the curse by becoming a curse for us. And that's what Paul makes clear. It's not that, it's not that the law had no place. The law did have a place. And the law's place was to be a tutor, was to teach us and to prepare us that our greatest need was not in learning how to keep the law, but to see that we couldn't keep it. And we were in need of a savior. Galatians chapter four, Paul begins to contrast this, this idea of a, a bond woman and a free woman, a child of promise and a child of the flesh. And this we must insist on, church. We must insist on justification. Being made right with God can only come by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. As long as this church has an existence, that message cannot be distorted. And it is the privilege of every member in this church to ensure that that doesn't happen. We can't allow distortions to this message. We must get this right for what we preach in here and for what we share in the world. Perhaps you're not a Christian this morning and you're here. I want to thank you for being here. I think one of the best places to consider the claims of Christianity is to show up and to say, okay, I want to see what the church says that God has said. And so find a church that will preach sermons that are from the Bible to think about how you view the world and think about what God has said about the world and find a church where you have the freedom to approach people, to say, I have questions about the faith. What does this mean and what does that mean? And just so you know, it would be the joy of any person in this room, any Christian in this room, any member of this church to have those conversations with you. But I want to remind you this morning that God has done something to justify you that nothing else can do. Your obedience can't do it. Your moral code of right and wrong can't do it. 
God has done something in Christ. He has made it possible to have your sins forgiven so that you might be declared not guilty before the holy God. And friends, that is good news. Paul says, I have good news for you about what God has done to make it possible for people like you and me to be set free from our sin. The burden that you're carrying this morning because you are still in your sin. You were not, in t- you were not created to carry that burden. You were created to, to live burdenless in fellowship with a holy God. And yet because of sin, the sin that you've committed, the sin that the first humans committed, Adam and Eve, that has been passed down to humans since then from that lineage, we're hardwired with a burden. And the burden isn't just life is hard. The burden is we are at odds with our maker. How in the world can we ever be free? It's not by what we do. It's by what Christ has done. And so what do you need to do if you're not a Christian this morning? Put your trust in the work of Christ. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And what Paul says is that if you're going to say, yeah, Doing good works is going to make me right before God? Then understand that you're putting yourself under a yoke of slavery because you have to do it all perfectly. You can't turn to just parts of it to find relief. The law is there to remind you that you can't keep it and you're in need of a Savior who can keep it for you and who would become a substitute to take on the penalty of sin that you deserve. And in untold mercies, Jesus Christ, God's Son, does both of those things. He's the Savior that keeps the law for us and bears the wrath for us. And if you will turn from your sin and trust in that work, you can know the profound joy that can only be found as that burden of sin and guilt and shame begins to slip off your back. And that good news is all of grace. It's all of grace. So abandon all hope in yourself and your ability to please God and throw yourself completely on Jesus Christ. And church... Don't lose sight of that gospel. Keep that gospel clearly in front of you. The most common accidents that happen in traffic are at a turn. When there's a car in front who goes and then stops, and the car behind that car looks to the left, sees that it's clear, goes, and rear-ends the car. Most common accident, not the most deadly of accidents, but the most common And the common denominator is that drivers in the second car took their eyes off of that which should have held their attention in the moment. Christian, 
don't take your eyes off of the gospel. Don't take your eyes off of by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is the reason that we set up camp in Galatians over the last four months. And I pray that you have benefited just soaking in the gospel so that we can say what Paul says when he reaches the end of his letter, and that is this, I boast in nothing but the cross of Jesus Christ because that is the instrument in which I place my faith and that has set me free. Leads us to our last section. Third section, walk in freedom and serve in love. Walk in freedom and serve in love. We see this in chapters five and six. And, and Paul helps us to consider what this looks like when we live these truths out. That this gospel and the authority that Paul had to preach it were from God. That being made right with God, being justified only is a work of God. Well, when that happens, what, what does our lives begin to look like? And Paul just makes clear what you believe and how you act are integrally related. And so Paul just says, if you believe in this gospel, don't make it the aim of your life to avoid persecution. If you believe in this gospel, don't make it the aim of your life to please man. Make it the aim of your life to lovingly uphold this truth. Paul is most concerned that they've not considered how their behaviors and how their beliefs would compromise their relationship both with God and with one another. And that really just dominates the last two chapters. Paul says, understand that if you believe this false message, you are putting your relationship with God at risk and you're putting your relationship with other Christians at risk. Because no amount of law-keeping can keep you from God's judgment. Because the righteous will live by faith. And so just think. Think about what Paul has said thus far in the letter as it relates to what faith in Jesus does. You become heirs according to the promises that God has made to Abraham. And as faithful as God was to keep those promises to Abraham, so too will he be faithful to keep those promises to you and I. You have become free from the law's condemnation. You are now called a son of God. And you say, well, wait, I'm a girl. No, this is all, this isn't about uh, gender. This is about this picture of an inheritance that's going to those who are sons of God. God gives you his spirit. You can now live by the spirit. There is now victory over sin. All of this fundamentally changes your relationship with God. And legalism is deadly, Paul says, because you run the risk of losing all of that by adding your works to the mix. You live according to the Spirit, which wages war with the flesh. 
Friends, if you think you can be good enough, that is deadly. If you think your works can add to anything that Christ has done, that is deadly. It's not seen. You and I can't see it in this life, but the reality of the final judgment of God is like gravity that keeps us grounded. And if we forget about that, then we become morally confused and we begin to turn to messages that we like rather than messages that are true. And so I just want to remind you, brothers and sisters, of what Paul says in Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. And whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Friends, don't presume that God's patience with you today in your sin means that his judgment is light. It's not. See his patience as an expression of his kindness, giving you time to turn from sin and to cling to him. And their freedom not only changed their relationship with God, they were now, they were now free from the bondage of sin. They were, their freedom changed how they also related to one another. And this is what Paul reminded us of in Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Freedom in Christ is not license for you to do whatever you want to do. Freedom in Christ is that now you are free from having to be so self-consumed that you can actually turn and love others and give to others and seek to do other spiritual good. And you say, well, what about me? You are being fulfilled and have been given more than you can ever receive in what you've received by grace through faith in Christ. And so you're free. You're free to love. There's a freedom from sin. And so church, let's reject the teaching that says you can, that being a Christian doesn't really change how you live. No, we follow the Spirit. We yield to the Spirit. Which means that you and I shouldn't be living the same kind of lives that we live before faith as we are after faith. Living out these truths isn't just a rule that we are to keep all the while we lack the power to keep it. Paul doesn't put this standard before us and say, hey, say no to self, say no to flesh, say no to sin, say yes to Christ, and walk away. He says, say no to sin, say no to flesh, say yes to Christ, And I'm going to give you the spirit that's going to seal you and enable you to do what you couldn't do without him. God graciously empowers us for this life with his spirit. 
that which he requires of us, he provides for us in and through his spirit. And so if you're a Christian this morning, I just want to remind you, live by the Spirit, sow to the Spirit, yield to the Spirit, so that your life may give glory and praise to the one who has given you his Spirit. And if you're just to step back and to follow this whole letter, I mean, this is a, this is a, a solid defense of what it means to be made right with God and how that then informs how we live before God. People often ask me, and I think this is a hard question to answer, what's your vision for Covenant Life Church? And, and sometimes I don't, I, don't, I don't know what they're asking, and I don't know what the vision is for CLC. But as I thought about this week, coming to the end of the letter of Galatians, I, just, I was writing down some thoughts. I just said, I have a vision for a group of people who are not content just to do church. Not, not content to play church. But instead, who are so affected by the reality of God's grace in their lives and in the lives of others, who are so affected by the transforming power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit, that they no longer primarily live for themselves, they don't live for their careers. They don't live for relationships. They don't live for their lifestyle. They don't live for blank. But they just live for Christ. And they say, Christ is worth it. We all live for something. And oh, that Covenant Life Church would live for the gospel and for this kind of God who loves in, un in immeasurable ways, unparalleled ways, that we would be a group of people who love God's word and who worship God with all of our hearts and who gather to serve God and to live together in unity. Like, I want to be a part of a people like that. I want to watch what God might do through a people like that, who love the gospel, who live for the gospel, who are not ashamed of the gospel, and who to a world that's looking for meaning can say with integrity and with love, I know the answer. I know the answer. And you and I can't manufacture that. But we can pray. And we can long for that. And we can live for that. By making sure that we have a clear picture of this gospel. Jerry Bridges in his book, Discipline of Grace, said the gospel is not only the most important message in all of history, it's the only essential message in all of history. And yet we allow thousands of professing Christians to live their entire lives without clearly understanding the gospel and experiencing the joy of living by the gospel. And Bridges says part of the problem is that we give sinners just enough gospel so that they can receive Christ. And then we immediately put the gospel on the shelf and go to the duties of discipleship. And as a result, Christians are not instructed in the gospel and they do not know the riches and the glories of the gospel. And they cannot preach 
the truth of the gospel to themselves or to others. And they can't live by it in their daily lives. I pray that Covenant Life Church would be a church that gets the gospel right. And because we get it right, we urgently and fervently and faithfully take that gospel everywhere we go. Galatians has served to help us do this, to make sure that we live in light of this good gospel. Let's pray.